Welcome to Backlog Books. My name is Kara. My pronouns are she, her. This is the podcast where I attempt to get through the 20-something books on my to-be-read shelf and fail miserably because I keep checking new books out of the library and rereading books that I love. Please be prepared for spoilers. Whether you are a 99 books a year reader or a one book a year reader, thank you for joining me. Let's get started. Today, we are talking about Nevernight by J. Kristoff. Here is the summary. In a land where three suns almost never set, a fledgling killer joins a school of assassins seeking vengeance against the powers who destroyed her family. Daughter of an executed traitor, Mia Corvair is barely able to escape her father's failed rebellion with her life. Alone and friendless, she hides in a city built from the bones of a dead god, hunted by the Senate and her father's former comrades. But her gift for speaking with the shadows leads her to the door of a retired killer in a future she never imagined. Now Mia is apprenticed to the deadliest flock of assassins in the entire Republic, the Red Church. If she bests her fellow students in contests of steel, poison, and the subtle arts, she'll be inducted among the blades of the Lady of Blessed Murder and one step closer to the vengeance she desires. But a killer is loose within the church's walls, the bloody secrets of Mia's past return to haunt her, and a plot to bring down the entire congregation is unfolding in the shadows she so loves. Will she even survive to initiation, let alone have her revenge? Nevernight was published in 2016. I borrowed an ebook copy from my library, so my guess for the page count is around 425. I read it between October 8th and 11th in 2020. Our author, Jay Kristoff, was born in 1973. He lives in Australia, and his job is writing books, for which he has won several Aurealis Awards, which are Australia's premier awards for speculative fiction and are specifically for works created by Australian citizens. I picked up this book on a whim. Sometimes you pick up a random book and it's amazing, a new favorite. And sometimes the random book is a disappointment. Nevernight is not a new favorite. It's basically impossible to always read books that you're going to love, and honestly, I think you learn something even when you read books you dislike, so we're forging ahead. <laughs> Content warnings in Nevernight for sex, murder, torture, and lots of swearing, if that bothers you. Nevernight begins with a note from an unnamed author, someone who is determined to write down the real story of Mia Corvair, to tell it like it is. This unnamed author also gives us fair warning. This will not be a narrative for the faint of heart. Descriptions of death and horror will be detailed and enduring. Even if I was annoyed with a lot of the narrator's cut-ins and footnotes, which I will talk more about later, I did at least appreciate this much. He gives you fair warning at the beginning. The first chapter begins with a dual narration. On one hand, we have a girl having sex for the first time. On the other hand, a girl is committing her first murder. 
The parallels between the narratives are done well, but actually this was something I saw people complain about a lot in reviews. And it is kind of weird. It's unique and done well and you never see it in the rest of the book. I wonder if Kristoff uses it to start all of the books in this series? In which case, it would be weird, but at least it would be consistently weird. The girl in both scenes is Mia Corvair, daughter of a traitor to the Republic, hidden away and learning to be a killer. It actually takes quite a while before you learn her name, and when you do, there's a footnote pointing it out, saying, and just like that, we learn her name. Am, am I supposed to be impressed that you know how to include a character's name in a book? We won't use her name that often. Instead, we will be reminded over and over again that Mia is a girl. Using epithets, that's when you use a descriptor instead of a person's name, can easily be overdone, and Kristoff, through the whole book, constantly refers to Mia as the girl. In some ways, it works well. The author wants to shock the audience, and it's a kick to be reminded that Mia is a girl. She's 16 years old and a murderer but it's really overdone. And that's going to be a common thread in this book. Good ideas, interesting premise, overdone. Each chapter begins with a flashback. We gradually learn where Mia came from and what drove her to take up the mantle of revenge. Her father was executed for participating in a rebellion seeking to overthrow the Senate, and her mother was imprisoned. Mia escaped the men who were meant to kill her, using her weird shadow powers. In the present, she murders a man in order to pay her tithe to join the Red Church, an elite cabal of assassins. She wants to become an assassin in order to avenge her father and mother, and she needs to be the best. Her targets are the leader of the Senate, the head of the church, and the general of the army of holy warriors, which is ambitious. <laughs> I'll say this for Nevernight, the world is well built. There's a Roman-inspired senate with a senator staying in power beyond his term limits in order to keep the peace. The city built in the skeleton of a fallen god. Ancient societies long gone in deep mysteries. But there were times, there were times, when the world-building went too far for me, which is not something I normally say. But why? Why do you need to make a point of telling me that there are seven days in a week? That's literally what a week is. There's a fine line between having information about the world that you're writing and shoving that information in a reader's face. I think it's good when an author has really thought about details like this. After all, why would the days of the week in this world be the same as the days in our world? But if it's not important to your murder mystery novel, your murdering and mystery novel, I really don't think I need to know that. Anyway, Mia has killed a dude and heads out, leaving home for the first time. Her teacher, Mercurio, has spent the last six years teaching her the skills she will need to survive the School of Assassins. He warns her that it will be dangerous, 
but he believes that she has what it takes to be initiated. Mia, along with being deadly, has a special extra set of skills. She is what is referred to as a darken. She is able to bend shadows to her will. She's accompanied by a shadow cat who lives in her shadow and eats her fear. I did like this. They even address the fact that Mia has no idea how to deal with her own fear anymore after years of her shadow eating it away from her. She reaches the town and the person she's supposed to give her tithe to in order to reach the Red Church. However, the contact says he doesn't know what she's talking about and sends her away. She figures out that it's a test, one of the first the Red Church will put her through. Mia is about to head out into the desert to search for the assassins when another initiate rolls through and encounters the same difficulty. His name is Trick. Trick and Mia team up and head out into the desert. They follow a caravan of supplies meant for the assassin school and make it, finally, to the Red Church in the Silent Mountain. Mia and Trick are accepted into the mountain school and begin their lessons. There are almost 30 students, but only four will be initiated as new assassins. The rest will be allowed to stay as servants of the mountain, if they survive. The mountain that hides the Red Church has a lot of really cool stuff. A brother and sister from a dead civilization who used their blood magic to aid the assassins, disguising them and keeping them alive, even with horrible injuries. There's a magical library with endless shelves full of monsters with a librarian who's more concerned about the book's survival than the students. There are master assassins who teach the skills the students will need. How to lie, seduce, poison, steal, and when all else fails, to use their blades in an open fight. Each master sets a task. Find a secret, steal a certain set of items, figure out an antidote, fight in a tournament. Whoever wins these tasks is almost guaranteed to be inducted as an assassin. Mia sets her sights on the antidote. She's not much of a thief or a fighter, but she knows poisons. Complicating this lovely bit of assassin schooling are a few murders. Oh no, someone is killing the students. I mean, the master assassins are killing the students with deadly tests, but this is someone murdering people. Murder? In my assassin school? It's more likely than you think. The Council of Master Assassins make a half-hearted effort to investigate. But it seems the killer is good enough to get away with it. So I guess lessons are going well. Mia has to compete against her fellow students, keep an eye out for a murderer, and try to ignore her attraction to Trick. The school puts them through several deadly tests, including torturing them to see if they're loyal, locking them in their rooms and pumping poison in, and taking them to a party. The party turns out to be a trap, of course. Each test lowers their numbers further. Mia and Trick sleep together several times, each time talking about how they shouldn't. You shouldn't have friends and attachments in assassin school when you're competing for very limited spots. This works out for Mia, though. She is briefly framed for the murders that have been going on, but luckily, sleeping with Trick is her alibi. 
While Mia and Trick are being punished for sneaking around after curfew, not for the murders, we unlock the final piece of Mia's backstory, the thing she has avoided thinking about for several years. The summary talks about how this world has three suns, one of which almost never sets. But every few years, all three suns set and true dark descends. You can imagine, then, how much more powerful someone who can control shadows would be during such a darkness. During the last true dark, Mia tried to break her mother out of prison and, using her pretty awesome shadow powers, ended up destroying the prison and nearly killing the entire Senate. Remembering this helps Mia come to terms with her shadow powers and more fully embrace that part of herself. Even with the horrible punishments and still unsolved murders going on, Mia manages to win the poison contest. She helps Trick to win the fighting tournament. They seem set to become assassins, finally, reaching the goals they've worked so hard for. Mia will be one step closer to avenging her family. There's one final test. Mia is brought into a room with a boy tied up, and the matron of the Red Church says, Kill this boy because I told you to. Mia refuses, for some reason, believing that she will only kill people who deserve to die. For a book that is supposedly about how ruthless Mia is and how many people she killed, she sure spends a lot of time on page refusing to kill people or merely incapacitating them, even in situations where killing them would make much more sense. Listen, I'm not bloodthirsty, I swear. But if you're going to set up a character as an assassin, they could kill a few people. I accept that as a consequence of reading a book about assassins. Especially if the introduction and the footnotes have been making a point of saying how ruthless Mia is and not to think of her as a good person. Am I supposed to connect with Mia more now that she has refused to murder somebody? The narration has specifically made a point of saying that people in the future believe Mia acted for the greater good and this book will prove how misguided people are about her. It says she was a ruthless killer. Oh, except for this time and that time and, you know, the time before that. Am I not supposed to believe the narrator? The tone of the writing changes so much that I can't tell. Okay, I'm sorry, we're not done yet. Mia, failure of an assassin, retreats from the Red Church for a few days. Her refusal to kill someone at assassin school has turned everything upside down. She won't be initiated as an assassin, but she'll still be expected to serve the Red Church. While she's gone, however, she figures out who the murderer is, and in so doing, also uncovers a plot by one of her fellow students to betray the assassins to the Senate and destroy the Red Church entirely. Mia returns and teams up with those who are left, the ragtag group of servants and fellow students who survived the Senate's first attack on the church, and they go to rescue the master assassins. In the end, Mia saves the master assassins, and her nemesis, the murderer, escapes. Mia is initiated as an assassin thanks to her thrilling heroics. 
She also finds a book about Darkin, which is what she is. It's about someone with the same kind of shadow powers she has. Mia has only ever met one other Darkin, and he had no answers for her about what they were or why they could control shadows. She has achieved one stage of her goals. She has a lot further to go, but initiated as an assassin has perfectly situated Mia to continue to work toward her revenge. My final word on Nevernight. This was a long book. It was made longer and more annoying by the footnotes. Some of them read like simple history lessons for no reason, and others are like sassy side remarks. I think I would have liked it better if the notes were one or the other. They tended to interrupt the flow of the story. For example, the end chase scene, which was otherwise very good, had a footnote wondering about what kind of noises a camel makes, which completely disrupted the flow of the scene for no reason. And that's my biggest problem with this book. It had a really interesting premise and a well-built world, and then the tone was all over the place. It tried to be edgy and dark and managed some of the time, but the rest of the time I wasn't sure if I was supposed to be laughing at it or not. I couldn't take any of the characters seriously. So, while the world was well-built, ultimately, I was not a fan of this book. If you want more media like this, I don't know, y'all, try The Lies of Locke Lamora by Scott Lynch. I think it does a better job of having, like, dark material and a kind of a funnier tone and a better world building. I didn't like that book really either, but it was better than Nevernight. Really, I just suggest that you play the Assassin's Creed video games. And that's a wrap. Join me next time to hear about The City Watch. You can find the pod on Facebook at Backlog Books Podcast. Comments, questions, do you have a better assassin book to recommend? Please? You can email me at backlogbookspod at gmail.com. The music is by Joseph McDade. You can hear more of his work at josephmcdade.com. Thank you for spending this time with me. It was a struggle, but we made it through. I hope to talk with you again soon.